You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlock your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby award-winning best business podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95 plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. The FT had some data recently showing that a self-survey of employees said that 23% of them felt that they could ask for a raise and that they would get one. So particularly for women, that kind of raises the question of, are we asking for what we deserve and how do we make the case? Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. So how's everybody doing out there? How are you feeling? How are you feeling specifically about your money? And the reason I ask is because the last time we did an economic check-in was early summer. And boy, things really have changed over the last six months. For one thing, the U.S. economy has continued to grow at a stronger pace than expected. It was up 5.2% in the third quarter, which is the fastest rate of growth that we've seen since late 2021. I don't know what happened to all that recession talk a year ago, but we're going to get into that today. Holiday spending, too, reached an all-time high this year. Americans spent almost 10% more than they did last year on Cyber Monday. We also had a pretty spectacular she recovery to follow the she session with women in the workforce doing better than ever. 75% of working age women now have jobs. And yet, and yet when you look at how we're feeling about the economy, we're still feeling anxious. According to the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index, Americans are about as negative about the U.S. economy today as we were during stretches of the Great Recession. Now, this could be due to inflation, which, yes, has slowed, but still means that we are paying more for 
essentials than we have in a very long time. It could be due to mortgage rates, the fact that a lot of people, particularly young people, are feeling that they simply cannot buy that first home that they were hoping to buy. We are feeling shaky, in fact, about about our investments as well, although the markets have have had a a fairly good year. We're going to break it all down. And we're going to do it with a fantastic guest and talk about where we could be going from here. Rana Faruhar is with me today. She is associate editor at the Financial Times. She's also CNN's global economic analyst, and she is an author. Her most recent book is Homecoming, The Path to Prosperity in a Post-Global World. It was published last year. And one quick announcement before I bring Rana into the conversation, the Her Money podcast, we're now on YouTube. So don't forget to subscribe to our channel at Her Money. Get notified about all our new episodes and let us know what you think in the comments. Rana Faruhar, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks, Jean, for having me. I really appreciate it. So let's start with something that I I mentioned up at the top, that idea of a recession. Is it that economists got it wrong or was it always sort of, well, maybe we'll have one and maybe we won't? So, you know, it's a great question, and and uh, I'm glad to have a chance to kind of break this down, because a lot of times when we hear the word recession, economists think about it one way, two or three quarters of negative growth. That is what we're looking at when we say this is an economic recession, but people feel the sense of a recession in a lot of different ways, right? I mean, a lot of people might look out at the post-2008 landscape, remember the great financial crisis, and say, gosh, I didn't feel a whole lot of recovery since then. Other people might say, I was feeling pretty good before COVID, and then I lost my job, and now I'm not. Others might say, well, you know, I got those support checks, and and I was able to get through, and, and I see my retirement savings has grown. So there's a lot of different ways in which people have a felt experience of where the economy is that sometimes differ from the actual technical definition of a recession. And the technical definition of a recession is sometimes not even used for a recession, right? I mean, when we look at what happened during COVID and when we look at what happened coming out of that period, right, we we sort of broke pace with that definition. Yeah. And again, I think it's really important, particularly on a show like this, to say, All of these definitions are a little arbitrary, right? The economy, how we measure it and how we feel about it is not handed down on a stone tablet from a pie. These are numbers that we make up, that policymakers make up. And sometimes they are appropriate to the moment and other times they aren't. One of the things I've been looking at for some time in my work is how Main Street feels the economy very differently than Wall Street does. And real people and consumers and workers in particular feel things very differently than, say, a trader or a financial person would. So I'll say that and then we can dig into whatever part of this that that you like. Well, I mean, I think the follow up question I'd like to ask, and maybe we can talk about it both ways, is how are we doing? So it's a great question. Let me take that from a Main Street perspective and from a Wall Street perspective. I'll start with the latter. Wall Street is still doing pretty well and has been doing pretty well, amazingly, over the last 15 years since we've seen a synchronized global financial crisis, since we've seen debt crises in Europe, a slowdown in China, a pandemic, a war in Ukraine, and now a war in Gaza. 
That's a lot. You might say, and many people would have said that we would have seen a Great Depression-like crash, you know, by now. But we haven't. Why is that? Because policies are in place to basically support the street and in particular to support asset prices. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, when we saw that slowdown in 2008, the Federal Reserve lowered interest rates and pumped a bunch of money into the economy. After COVID, we saw the same thing happening. We also saw uh, what's called fiscal stimulus coming from the White House, where you had this administration, the Biden administration, bailing out real individuals who had lost their jobs rather than just banks. But the upshot of it all is that there's been a lot of government support of the economy, and that tends to translate into stocks doing better, housing prices um, staying pretty high. Now, we've also seen in the last couple of years a big shift, really almost a 40-year shift in interest rates. So for most of our, I'm, I'm 53 years old, for most of my life, roughly the last 40 years or so, interest rates have been going down, you know, occasionally up, but mostly the trend line has been down. That means debt is cheaper. It means asset prices stay high. So we've all gotten kind of used to that easy money environment. In the last couple of years, that's changed. And so we've we've seen anyone that's holding debt, anyone that's trying to buy a house is now looking at paying, you know, a 7 or 8% mortgage as opposed to what many of us have paid. I mean, I'm living in a house with a 30-year fixed. 2.875 mortgage. So that's a huge difference. And people feel that difference, particularly younger people that may be starting to think about getting their first home or paying off debt of different kinds. So that felt experience of higher rates, but also in recent years of inflation, for many reasons, we felt inflation biting. The war in Ukraine and the pandemic created all kinds of supply chain disruptions that were kinks in the system that we saw in the form of food inflation and gas inflation. Even as some of those have begun to work themselves out, you know, you see wage inflation. Now, that's kind of a double-edged sword right there, right? Because on the one hand, you want more money in your pocket, and a lot of people haven't gotten raises in real terms in, in a couple decades now. But on the other hand, when wages go up too high and too fast, then companies start to cut back. And you've actually seen that even in recent weeks. You've seen big cuts in the tech field, Spotify, Google, companies like this are all sort of pulling back. So you need to find that happy middle ground in order for people, average consumers to, to feel good. Now, where are we at the beginning of the year here? We're in an interesting pivot point because that COVID stimulus, that the checks that many people received and some of that pent up savings has mostly been spent down now. At the same time, companies are starting to tighten their belts a little bit. We may see more job cuts in the future. Job markets have been you know, pretty robust, more robust than many people would have thought, but cuts could be coming. So if we start to see those two things dovetailing, then you might see people saying, wow, it's really starting to feel like a recession now. And if they are feeling like a recession, will that actually bring on a recession, right? I mean, so much of our economy these days, and, and we saw this with Christmas, right? So much of our economy is a function of consumer spending, and consumers have been spending. But if the words of layoffs continue and if if it feels like it's getting worse, that could dry up and could that eventually, I mean, we've got to have one sometime, right? 
Well, yeah, boy, there's a lot lot in what you just said. Let me unpack it a little bit. For starters, yes, spending matters. I mean, in the U.S. and in many developed countries, the economy is basically two-thirds consumer spending, sometimes more. So it 100% matters whether people are, are spending more or not. Companies count on that. It also depends where your 401k is. It depends. Is your housing price still pretty robust? Are you feeling like you could take a home interest loan if you needed to? I mean, all of these things kind of factor into what's going on. We also are in kind of an odd moment historically where the Biden administration has put a lot of fiscal stimulus into the economy. Everything from the big infrastructure act to the chips act to the inflation reduction act which is really a climate bill it's about trying to spend more to transition the US to clean energy. All that stuff is still in play and will remain in play certainly throughout this year. So that provides a little bit of a tailwind where I think it could offset some of that slowdown on the part of the consumer. And that's part of this bigger shift that the Biden administration has been trying to make to a more income-led model rather than a consumer spending, let's just make sure stock prices stay high kind of a model. What do you mean by that, an income-led model? So what I mean by that is the U.S. has, for the last half century or so, made some decisions, and these have been made on both sides of the political aisle, to say, as long as share prices are going up and consumer prices are going down, everything's okay. You know, we we should all be cheering. And if you're one of the top 10 percent of the population that owns 80 percent of stock, that that does work for you. Um, and if you're like most people and you want to see cheaper prices in places like Walmart and, and in the supermarket, as long as prices are going down, that, that kind of works too. But for a lot of people, life is very much in the middle and they get most of their money from a paycheck. And the fact is that even with some of the wage hikes that we've seen, cost of living has been outpacing whatever small wage inflation we've seen. And we just haven't seen a lot in the last couple of decades. And that's because as a country, we've made decisions to outsource jobs to cheaper wage locations like China. We've used technology to displace a lot of jobs. AI is coming down the pike. I mean, we could do a whole show on that because we're about to see a lot of white collar job disruption. So you need a balance between stocks going up, consumer prices going down, but also incomes growing and jobs growing because at the end of the day, most people get most of their money from a paycheck. Yeah. And it's troubling because before we got this little burst of wage inflation, and I I do think in historical terms, it was fairly small. Wages had just been stuck and, and they'd been stuck for a good, I don't know, decade and a half. So consumers, especially those consumers in the middle, are kind of stuck. Fortune recently reported that the U.S. housing market is so expensive that income would have to jump 55 percent to make buying affordable. And I've got a 29-year-old who is about to get married. I know he and his his soon-to-be wife want to buy a house. They live in California where things are really expensive. It is really, really difficult. So as you look at the economy sort of writ large versus your own personal economy as a consumer, as an investor, as a potential home buyer. 
What do you think people can and should be focused on that they can actually control? Hmm, That's such a good question. Well, we can control how much we spend. We can control not 100%, but we can control somewhat what we save. Of course, what we save is dependent on, you know, how much do we have to shell out for a house? How much do we have to pay in student loans? What's our auto payment? But to the extent that there's anything left over, which I know for a lot of people there isn't always, but if if there is, we can control how much we save. We can control if we pay down debt. I mean, the very first thing I always say is you got to pay down debt. You know, I'm a good Midwestern girl. I, I really don't like debt. And as a matter of fact, my husband and I have this conversation sometimes we still have a mortgage, right? And it's a low interest mortgage. It's 2.875, as I said. But I just want to get rid of that mortgage. I just, and that's a very female way of thinking about, you know, we're savers. We like to play it safe. Women do. Now you can argue, (laughs) as he would, that, hey, if we put our money in the market rather than paying down that mortgage, we would make more. And in the end, it's better to do that. But, you know, it, it some of it comes down to security and psychology. So, I like the idea of, first of all, try not to carry credit card debt. Second of all, own a home. Don't rent right now. If you can buy, do buy. And if that math works, try and get there because rents are very expensive. And then try and pay down whatever debt you have. I mean, that's what you can control. Yeah. Where are you on the value of a college education at this point? I mean, that's something else that has come under fire this year. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say I have one student that's about to finish college this year, and I think she's done very well. She went to the University of Chicago, great school, great degree. I am I feel pretty, even though it was an expensive degree, I feel pretty good about the value of that. I have a son who's about to go to school. He's a senior in high school. We don't know where he's going to go. But his path is interesting because he's someone that is very kinetic. He's very physical. He's interested in business. He's interested in entrepreneurship. In some ways, I wish there were more paths for people that maybe aren't so suited for a four-year liberal arts sort of degree and maybe could go straight into more of an apprentice track or a work track. I think we're hearing that from a lot of people. I did a story recently. Interestingly, I went out to see the big construction union and builders union that has their headquarters in Las Vegas. And I was speaking to someone there that was saying, They are totally oversubscribed in terms of their national training programs. And they said many of the kids that are coming in, or young adults that are coming in, or even career transitioners, are four-year graduates. And they are finding that they just cannot find a six-figure job that's going to give them health care and a pension. And I think that that speaks to the fact that we do have an educational system at the secondary and tertiary level that needs to evolve, needs to change. And we've got to get job creators and educators more connected to make sure that those big checks we're all writing to universities are actually paying off. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I moderated a panel recently for a small business panel where one of the men on the panel ran a a construction company in the Pennsylvania area, and they were having trouble getting people to fill their jobs. And so they went to the local community college and set up an apprentice program so that they had a, a feeder into the jobs that they needed to fill. And I think that we definitely need more of that and are going to need more of that, particularly as AI, which you mentioned, comes online in a bigger way. I want to talk about that in just a second. But before we do that, we're going to take a break. 
Have you been listening to our new podcast? It's called How She Does It, hosted by Karen Feinerman. We recently had Melody Hobson on. She is a self-made investor. She is a total genius. She's one of Forbes' most powerful women in the world. Check it out to hear her incredible story. Hey, everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning Best Business Podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. We are back. I'm talking with Rana Faruhar, global business columnist for the Financial Times. All right. AI, which I got to say, just scares the heck out of me. (laughs) You and me both. (laughs) The recent report from Indeed, AI at Work, it found that AI will impact almost every job in America, not surprisingly. What do you think are the industries that are at most risk? Mm. How much should we actually be worrying in 2024? Oh, golly. I, I mean, there's so much to talk about here. Let me start with the big sort of Terminator worries, you know, <laughs> to use a shorthand. Uh, I always think about that movie when I think about AI. And we do have these disaster scenarios in our head. And certainly the notion that, gosh, we have Computerized systems that run everything, our defense systems, our utility grid, our energy supplies, the idea that more and more of these are going to be run with software that employs AI, and could that make a mistake? That's a real concern. And there are very serious people who know a lot more about AI thinking about that. But what I will say is... I actually think in the short term, we have more to worry about from an economic standpoint. And women in particular need to really cotton on to this because unlike the last time we had a big technological disruption of the labor market, which is really in the late 80s and throughout the early 90s, where you have the manufacturing sector being disrupted, not just by the sort of the China shock and outsourcing of jobs, but by robots doing more, software doing more. You know, my my dad ran factories in the Midwest in the 70s and 80s, and there were a lot more human beings in them than you would find now. So, but that was a disruption that impacted men disproportionately because they worked in the manufacturing sector. We are about to see the services sector, which is much more tilted towards women, really disrupted. So there was an OECD report. OECD is the big body, intergovernmental body that represents rich countries. And they said, we are worried that women will be disproportionately impacted by AI. The 35 or 40 percent of jobs in the world that are going to be most immediately affected by this are clerical, their data entry, their legal services. I mean, they're things that that many of us know women doing. And so 
this is something that we need to to really make sure that we're putting a floor under and thinking about how to support people. One thing I've been quite fascinated by, actually, I don't know if, if you or any of the listeners have followed the Hollywood strikes. Many of us followed them because, you know, we were <laughs> concerned about our shows being uh, renewed. <laughs> um, but Hollywood and creative professions are uh, there's a lot of women in these businesses. And those workers were striking not just for higher pay and more benefits, but they were striking to have control over artificial intelligence and how it's used in their work. And so one of the deals that was cut is that those writers and creatives in Hollywood are now going to be able to say to the studios, yes, we're okay having our work tweaked in this way by AI, or yes or no, you can use our data or ask us to work with AI. And I think that's a really interesting development because it's just a, a way in which labor is starting to take back a little control about this very disruptive technology. I was following it as well. I'm actually a SAG-AFTRA member, and it's where I get my health insurance. So I got in through the news union many, many years ago. But I thought it was interesting and about time, actually, that people started taking back some of or trying to take back some of this control. It's not just AI, though, that is expected to impact the labor market. As you mentioned at the top, the the job growth is expected to slow down, start to slow, particularly in the second half of, of 2024. And it ties directly to that desire to get paid more. We saw during the pandemic and over the last couple of years, if you are staying where you are and you are negotiating for a raise, it's likely to be a raise in the single digits. If you go across the street, you know, you can get 20, 30 percent. What's going to happen to those wannabe job hoppers? And on the flip side, what do you think people should do if they want to be protected from layoffs? Interesting. Um, Well, so in terms of job hopping, I do think, and you're already seeing data to show that it's getting a little harder, right? So in the last few years, labor has had more power than it has in the past. But as we start to see a little bit of a slowdown, nothing falling off a cliff, but a little bit of a slowdown in the jobs market and certainly slowdown in wage inflation, it's going to get harder to job hop. Now, that said, The FT had some data recently showing that a self-survey of employees said that 23 percent of them felt that they could ask for a raise and that they would get one. So particularly for women, that kind of raises the question of, are we asking for what we deserve and how do we make the case? And one of the things I think a lot about is, so I'm, I'm 53. I'm more expensive than many younger journalists would be, but frankly, I'm way more productive. I have a value that if it were clocked in hourly productivity and wages, I think my employer would be doing pretty well. And how can we protect ourselves? We can know our worth. We can start to make a case for it in our own minds to begin with. And then to employers, should that be necessary? So that would be my advice, starting advice to everyone. Yeah, I feel the same. I think there's something about, I don't know if it's, I'm a little bit older than you. I'm 59. There was something about becoming a mother that actually made me more productive. When I went back to work after I had my first child, all of a sudden, everything was getting done a lot faster. And I think it was just, and and I was getting more of it done. And I think it was just because in my mind, I had another reason to want to get off the clock and be home. 
You know, it's funny. I, I had a conversation years ago with a woman who was running the New York Stock Exchange, and she said, you know, I love hiring working mothers because they're just the most productive people in the world. There's very little wasted time, water cooler chit-chat. No, no, no. You know? <laughs> just do the job and get home. And it's funny, in other culture, I worked in Europe for many years. Germans are incredibly efficient, and they think that there's something wrong with you if you're staying past six. That means that you're not efficient. You know, there are different cultures that, that think about these things differently. That's so interesting. We've been thinking a lot about income inequality this year, the way that financial power is concentrated in this country. In your book, In Homecoming, you actually offer some solutions to where we are now with power being so concentrated in the hands of a few at the top. How do you see that playing out over time? So it's interesting. I, You know, if I go way back in economic history, I see the economy as kind of like a it's a big pendulum and it swings about every 50 or 100 years. You know, it swings towards labor, away from labor, towards Wall Street power, away from Wall Street power. We're at a pivot point right now. We've talked about it a little bit already. We have seen growing labor power. We've seen more strike action this year than we have in gosh, decades. And you're seeing much more creative thinking on the part of workers about how do we divide the pie? And it's not just about pay. It's like we're living increasingly in a digital economy and an economy that's driven by data and attention capture. You know, it's a, it's all about getting us to watch things, listen to things, give our data in exchange for free services like search or different online services. And so labor is thinking about how to capture a piece of that. That is a big shift. I think it is a shift that has legs and it will go on, I think, for years and decades, regardless of what happens in the immediate economic cycle. And finally, as we wrap this up, I don't even remember what year it was that that James Carville said it's the economy stupid. I think it was I think it was 92. It's a quote that gets trotted out every single time we have a presidential election. I've heard it this cycle already several different times. How much of what happens next year as we head to the polls and what happens in the primaries do you think is tied to the economy? I mean, so much of it, so much of it. It's, it still is the economy, stupid, as, <laughs> as we've heard. I think what's interesting is that there are so many metrics we could pay attention to, and you can spin them all sorts of ways. On the one hand, we've just come through a period of time where we could have been in a Great Depression by now. I mean, a lot of people thought post-COVID, with interest rate hikes, with war, with supply chain disruptions, that we would have been. We're not. And we still have a pretty robust economy, particularly in the U.S. On the other hand, there's no doubt that inflation has hurt. It's uh, People feel it. You feel it when you're at the grocery store. I feel it when I go to restaurants, which I hardly do anymore, because I just feel like, gosh, I don't want to sit and pay over $100 for something that I could make at home for a fifth of that price. So that's going to be a big deal. And it's interesting how Bidenomics gets messaged. And whatever the Republican candidate may be, what they have to say, it will be, I think, still an election that's all about the economy. Well, we hope that we can check in with you as we get closer to the election. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for being here and for doing this. Thank you for having me. If our listeners want to learn more about you and, and connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Check out my website, RanaFaruhar.com. has all my content, my books, and what I'm doing. Before we dive into our mailbag, a quick word from our sponsors. 
When it comes to retirement, women want different things. We want safety, security, stability, and the ability to live life on our own terms. One way we can achieve all of that is with an annuity. If you're not familiar with annuities, the concept is that essentially you take a chunk of money and turn it into a paycheck that you can start drawing on when you want to, next year or next decade. The ParityFlex multi-year guaranteed annuity available from Gainbridge offers security and flexibility at a time when women need it most, retirement. A guaranteed lifetime withdrawal benefit means you'll have a consistent income even when your account balance is zero. Plus, you'll get guaranteed returns at 5.95% APY. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gamebridge.io. Please visit Gamebridge.io slash ParityFlex for important information. This is a paid endorsement. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back for Mailbag. My daughter, Julia Chatsky, is joining us. Hey, Jules. Hello. How you doing? Doing okay. You know, I was thinking about Rana's predictions for the economy and wondering how people your age are sort of feeling about money going into 2024. There's this index that's called the misery index. It's the opposite of the happiness index, which sort of tracks how optimistic we're feeling. And overall, the misery index, even though the economy, as Rana was saying, is doing pretty well, the misery index is showing that we're not feeling like it's doing well. So when you think about like your friends and how they're feeling about their jobs and how they're feeling about debt and things like that, are are people more optimistic or you think less? I don't know. I think we are coming off of bonus season. And so some people are pleased and some people feel undervalued. I think, you know, it's really interesting. I listen to to different things and, and people are saying that just like my generation and the millennials and the Gen Zs, it's you're never really gratified compared to like your generation. A job was a job and you were okay with it. But for us, never seems to be enough. So I think especially this time of year when you come off that fatigue of end of year and then bonus details, I don't know. I think it's a little bit of a catch-22 itself. I think that you're right. And I also think a lot of people work for jobs where they don't even get bonuses. I had friends who didn't get bonuses this year and got bonuses in other years. And I think it's a tell of the times a little bit. Yeah, definitely. I think sometimes as an employer, you have to think about if you're giving a bonus, if it's something that you're going to be able to sustain or continue, because if you're not, you have to worry that you're going to disappoint people in future years. We've got some questions, so let's tee them up. All right. Our first question comes from Susan. She writes, Hello, Jean. 
I'm a senior who is recently widowed. I wasn't involved in a lot of the financial aspects. I've had to learn a lot in the last few weeks. Do you have any resources for this type of learning? I'm planning on getting my friends together and sharing everything I have learned because this is quite a wake-up call. I'm surprised to learn that many of my friends don't know a thing about their finances. Thank you, Susan. Oh, boy. Susan, well, first of all, I am so sorry for your loss. It is really, really difficult to... um, to lose your spouse. And I commend you for diving right into the finances. I know that you have had to dive right into the finances because I hear this a lot from women, but particularly from women your age who had a more traditional financial setup in their marriage where the husband managed the money, maybe As a woman, you manage the budget, but definitely not the investments, the insurance, and and those sorts of things. You asked for resources, and I have two of them. The first one is our finance fix class. And by the way, you could take any one of our finance fix sessions, but we are launching one specifically for older people. We're calling it a pre-retirement checkup. And the thinking is that as you head into retirement, having a good handle on where your money is going is one of the most necessary steps when you're planning to make your money last for the rest of your life. So Finance Fix is a course that helps you figure out where your money is going, spend a little less, save a little more, pay down debt, if you have it, get a grip on your goals, and you do it with a coach and with a group, a small group generally of about 15 or 20 people who are some of the most supportive people that I've I've ever met. These groups are, are really, really wonderful. So maybe you want to bring your friends along for the ride. The other resource that we have is a class called Investing Fix. And It's an investing course. Karen Feinerman, who's the host of our other podcast, which is called How She Does It, Karen and I are teaching investing online to hundreds of women every other Monday night on Zoom. And we are going through the process of evaluating different investments, the terminology, the lingo, answering questions, and building a portfolio as we go along. And a lot of the people in this group I know are your age as well. So I'd suggest that you try one or maybe even try both. Investing Fix, you can start with a free month. If you go to our website, it's hermoney.com. You'll find the information for both Finance Fix and Investing Fix. If you've got any questions, just drop us a note there as well, and we're happy to answer them and just figure out if these programs are right for you. And by the way, and and Julia, this is not for you, but it's for people your age. We're also launching a cohort of Finance Fix specifically for younger people because we've heard from a lot of parents, particularly of kids who are just coming out of college, that their children are having trouble budgeting and living on what they make. So I hope that that's helpful too. Yeah, I'm sure it will be. We've got one more. All right. Our next question comes from Amanda. She writes, Hi, Jean. 
I have a question for you that I've searched the internet for an answer on high and low, but surprisingly cannot find much. Good thing you came to us, Amanda. (laughs) Considering many people have multiple jobs, I thought this question may benefit others as well. I currently have three jobs, a full-time job, a temporary part-time job that will last about six months that I will make 1K a month at, and another ongoing job that I make $170 a month at. I'm a single parent with one tax dependent, so at my full-time job, my withholding allowance is two. However, what I've read has stated for an additional part-time job someone has, they should always have their withholdings at zero, so most amount of taxes are taken out. Is this correct? Any guidance would be very much appreciated, as I trust your knowledge wholeheartedly. Thank you for the podcast. Thank you for a great question, Amanda. You're right. It is a really complicated question. It is a complicated question that the IRS actually took a look at at a couple of years ago when they changed the form on withholding to try to help more people with multiple streams of income get it right. And look, I understand why the advice is to set your withholding at zero so the most money is taken out. The reason that that is recommended is because people look at this equation and they think, well, it's a lot more painful to owe taxes at tax time than it is to get a refund because you had too much taken out. This sets you up for that. But If you're over withholding and you actually could use the money throughout the year to help support you, it doesn't really solve your problem. So I'd suggest two things. The first is we are at the end of a tax year. So you actually have the ability to do your taxes in the very near future and to figure out if you overwithheld. And if you did overwithhold, then you're going to want to bump up your withholding allowances at these other two jobs at least a little bit. If you don't want to wait that long, I would send you to a tax software program like TurboTax, where you can sort of run these calculations looking forward into 2024 and get a, a more specific answer to the question than you're going to get by using the IRS's withholding tools. I, I am sorry that I can't say just put one or just put two on your worksheet and call it a day, but by doing that, I'm also worried that you will under withhold and wind up with a tax bill at the end of the year. So these are my two suggestions, and I hope that they help, and I hope that you have a happy 2024. And if you've got any other money-related questions, we'd love to hear from you. Just send them to us by emailing us at mailbag at hermoney.com. You can also add a comment on our YouTube page. We're going to take a very quick break. Dive into the heart of crime with Foul Play Crime Series. Immerse yourself in the most perplexing cases where each twist and turn is more baffling than the last. With riveting storytelling and detailed analysis, Foul Play brings the unsolved and unexplained to life, captivating your imagination. Listen to Foul Play Crime Series now. 
where every story is a puzzle waiting to be solved. And we are back with your money tip of the week. We are right in the middle of hashtag engagement season. That's the time between Thanksgiving and Valentine's Day, according to wedding site The Knot. If you're looking to save on sparkle, you and your partner may be considering a lab-grown diamond. And that's no surprise. Man-made diamonds have skyrocketed in popularity in recent years. In fact, CNBC reports that by 2024, the market for lab-grown diamonds is expected to be valued at around $18 billion. It's a great thing to consider because they can ring in at up to 50% less than a real diamond. Here's the thing, though. They probably won't have any resale value in the future. Why? The industry is growing so rapidly that many experts are calling it a bubble. And the more lab-grown diamonds that are made, the less valuable they become. So if you're considering buying a diamond and you want it to be an investment piece, it's best to stick to the real thing. And if you're trying to make a conscious decision about choosing an ethically sourced and sustainable diamond, Brides.com has a great list of 14 companies for you to check out. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. And thanks to Rana Faruhar for joining us for our first economic check-in of 2024 and what it all means for our personal economies. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Edelman Financial Engines. Her Money is produced by Haley Pascalides. This show is mixed and mastered by CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Check out our new podcast, How She Does It, with Karen Feinerman for intimate cocktail party-style conversations with today's most talented female leaders. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.